Revelation chapter 20 is a particularly interesting topic. Now, we're in the deep end. For those of you who have never even heard about this or thought about this, I understand that. The Apostle Paul said when he was preaching to new converts, he said, I, I only gave you the milk of the word. I focused primarily on the cross of Christ alone because you weren't able to um, feed on the deeper truths of the Bible, the solid meat, which is for those who are maturing in the faith. That's our goal, that each of you, we advance the gospel. Once you get saved, we don't go, okay, we got another soul scalp. We then want to develop and see the Lord Jesus make disciples. And a disciple is not just someone who gets saved and gets baptized, but they're growing in grace, they're growing in their understanding of the scriptures, and then they're being transformed by it. So the goal of preaching through the Bible is not to fill our heads with information, but also to experience God's transformation as we apply it to our lives. We're coming to a passage right now that's very controversial in that there are a number of ways that Christians have interpreted it. And I want to clarify something here. Some people have felt that if you have a different view of Revelation, that are you allowed to do that? And so I want to, because I hear this quite a bit, let me remind you that there are major doctrines of the Bible, okay? Such as the Trinity, such as the Gospel, such as who Jesus is, such as salvation by grace through faith. But then there are what we would call secondary or minor issues. These are things that Christians can disagree on, okay? For example, the gift of speaking in tongues. There are some Christians that feel that that is not for today. There are other Christians who would say, hey, I think it, speaking in tongues is biblical and it's still being practiced today. That is not a major doctrine. Christians should not separate over minor doctrines. We should separate over major doctrines. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, come out from among them and be separate. And in the context there, it was in the context of people who were preaching a false gospel. So I encourage people who are attending a church that's preaching a false gospel to get out of that church and to get into a church where they're preaching the Bible. Now, there might be exceptions where they're saying, I'm staying in that church to try to win them to Christ. So the way that we interpret the book of Revelation is not a major doctrine. And the beauty in all of this is to say, regardless of how I see certain passages, in the grand scheme, there are still practical applications that I can see experiencing in my own life that regardless of how I interpret it, that God has spoken to me and strengthened my faith. So today we're going we're gonna to talk about a word that some of you have never heard of, the word millennium. So some of you are like, please, I was talking about that when I was in my pack and play. I grew up in a strong theological home. The word millennium just means a thousand years. And there's a passage that we're going to look at this morning that in seven verses mentions the word, the phrase thousand years seven times. So it's obviously an important phrase here. And the question is, what does that mean? What, what is this millennium that John describes? And Christians from the history of the early church have debated the meaning of that, and that's okay. There's no, you know, some people obviously feel definitively, I know my way's right. But I think what's more important is that you hear the different views, and then we, we go, okay, let me, let me think them through and see which one seems most convincing to me. So last week we saw 
Jesus coming back to wage war and judge the ungodly. Now I want you to look with me in Revelation chapter 20. And we'll begin in verse 1 through 3. And after I read that, I'm going to give you the big picture of the different views of the millennium. It says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. We need the Lord's help to understand this. So would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, we thank you so much for Jesus, our precious Lord, our great Savior who loved us and shed his blood for us, and our eyes look to him this morning for help. He has promised that he sent the Spirit to lead us into all the truth. So give us open minds and give us the ability to search the scriptures like the Bereans and to be strengthened in our faith as your Holy Spirit works in our hearts. We particularly pray for those who are, are hearing this for the first time or who have never even thought about the end times, that you will awaken within them a great hunger to learn the word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about the three major views of this millennium. We're going to look at a slide here to start. The first view is called the premillennial view. Now, the pre here is simply saying this. Prior to this thousand years, Jesus is coming back. Okay, so from the cross until that arrow, that's where we're living. This is the church age. So the premillennial view is simply this, that after Jesus comes back for the next thousand years on this planet, we will be experiencing the events that are explained in this passage which would mean for that thousand-year period, Satan's going to be taken from on earth. He's going to be bound. We might put him under the earth in, in an abyss. And that at the end of these thousand years, in the future, after Christ comes back, he's going to come out briefly and deceive the nations. This was a, a popular view in the early church. Now, a secondary side note to remind some of you as you're like, well, where's the rapture in all of this? And remember, when we've been talking about that, we said many Christians believe that prior to the second coming, if I had another arrow there, seven years before that, Jesus is going to take us up to heaven. So we're not going to be there for the last seven years called the tribulation. And then Christ comes back. Okay? That's a different term. That's called pre-tribulation. Okay? So I know that it's like, Excuse me, are you pre-trib, pre-mill? Um, you know, wait a minute, okay? But, but it's important that we at least, this is not just for rocket scientists. Every Christian should, should at least be able to go, well, let me at least familiarize myself. And you're like, why does theology have these big terms? Every discipline has new terms when you learn biology, science. Even if you're watching a football game, nobody knows what a sack is until somebody explains it to them or a quarterback. So same thing with theology. We'll explain it, but then you can think and go deeper and grow. This is not just to titillate our brains with information. So the premillennial view is saying, look, in chapter 19, Jesus came back. 
So therefore, this millennium is going to be after that. Any questions? Save them for later. All right, now I'm just kidding. All right, second view. The second view is called the post-millennial view. This is not a popular view today. It used to be, but World War I and World War II made it much less optimistic. The post-millennial view would say, we are living in the church age now, the dark blue, but at some time before Jesus returns, Christianity will have spread to such an extent that the golden age of the millennium will happen on this earth. And they might base it on passages where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a little leaven that you put into a lump, and then it, then it spreads to the whole lump. And so there was a great optimism in the early 1900s that Christianity was going to spread, and pretty soon we were all going to grab hands, worship Jesus, have a Coca-Cola, and teach the world to sing. So the post-millennial view would be that sometime in the future before the coming of Christ, there will be a golden age on earth, the millennium. Now there's some debate as to, is it a literal thousand years? But that's not a very popular view anymore. The third view is called the amillennial view. Now, the problem with calling it amillennial, I don't like that term for this reason. When you put ah on the front of an English word, it usually cancels it out or means not, like a theist, believes in God, and atheist says there's no God. So the amillennial view does not say there's no millennium, okay? So the amillennial view is that the, the millennium is taking place right now, that when Jesus came to earth, he began his millennial kingdom reign. Now, some of you are going, well, duh, <laughs> that can't be right because it's 2021. He should have come at the year 1000. But that has to do with how you interpret the phrase a thousand years. So, oftentimes, these three views, one of the main reasons people come to different conclusions is how do you interpret these passages? Now, let me be really clear here. We use terms like, I just take the Bible literally, and other people go, oh, we, we don't take the Bible literally. Now, come on. If I said to you, my dog kicked the bucket last night, or any of you going, why he do this? Milk in this bucket? Why he? No, you, you would go, that's a figure of speech, okay? So when we're reading the book of Revelation, we're not reading normal language of how people communicate. We're reading what's called apocalyptic literature that has these dreams and visions and beasts and dragons. So right from the start, it's not a question of, oh, is this, you're not taking it literal, but rather thematically, was it ever meant to be literal? So when Daniel sees these strange and wild beasts with fangs and all, are we expecting to see that on Neighborhood Watch? Does anybody know what this beast is? I saw it running across my yard. Sometimes we go, that's obviously not meant to be literal. We saw in Revelation 12, I saw a woman with 12 stars about to give birth, and, and the dragon was waiting to devour her. None of us were going, wow, wouldn't have wanted to been in that hospital at the maternity room, and the doctors are going, get that dragon out of here. We would know that that is... That is meant to be symbolic. So some of the issues around the meaning of the millennium 
particularly have to do with two things. Number one, is chapter 20 meant to be chronologically following chapter 19? In other words, most people, go back to the premillennial view for a moment, if you would. Joe, thank you, brother. So the premillennial view, the first one, most people will go, why are we even talking about this? It says in chapter 19 that Jesus came back. Now we're in chapter 20, so therefore this has to be after that. And I go, well, time up. Revelation 20 does not begin with, then after that, this happened. Okay, so that's not really a strong argument that because this millennium is mentioned after chapter 19, it has to happen afterward. Then it would if he said, then this happened, but he doesn't. He said, and I saw. And that's been throughout the book. And we've seen a number of times where John saw another vision, and it was clearly not meant to say that was after this happened, okay? So I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but the idea of just going, well, chapter 20 is after chapter 19, so the millennium has to be afterward. You really can't say that with certainty just because he says, and I saw. So the, the, if we'll go back to the second slide, Joe, the millennial view is, not, is simply saying this. John goes, and I saw another vision, right? And this another vision that he saw is taking us back to the church age, to, to the beginning of um, Christ's reign on earth, okay? So that's number one. The second thing, just to, to, to talk in a preliminary way, and then we're going to read through the passage, okay? If some of you have never read this, is what does John mean by a thousand years, okay? So clearly, if it's literal, then the... the millennial or present millennial view cannot be true because Jesus would have come in 1000 BC. Harold Camping would have had us all waiting on the mountain and Jesus didn't come, okay? So, but the question is, can I conclusively say a thousand years has to be literal? Now, the moment some people hear that, they go, see, you're playing fast and loose with the word of God. You're just changing things because you want to get your view. And I go, well, wait a minute. Is that really fair? For example, in chapter 2, when Jesus said to one of the churches, I will cast you in prison for 10 days. It's possible that that was literal, but I take that to be a little unlikely that Jesus is like, just be willing to stay there 10 days and then you're going to get bailed out. So I would suggest, and I have said this a number of times, that there are a number of phrases in the book of Revelation that because it's apocalyptic literature do not need to be taken literally. So don't make this jump to go, oh, so now you're saying Jesus wasn't in the ground for three days, even though the Bible says that? It didn't rain 40 days or 40 nights, even though the Bible says that? No, because those aren't, those aren't apocalyptic literature, okay? But it can be demonstrated from first century literature that the phrase a thousand years was not always taken literal. And if we have time, I'll mention to you uh, uh, outside source written in the first century that used a thousand years to describe the blessing that Christians will experience. So all that to say, if you hold to the amillennial view, you are not taking all of these phrases literally. Now let me, let me now enter into the personal mode. Personally, I have always held to the first one, 
the premillennial view. I could not even think how someone could read this passage and come to the view that it's amillennial. What are you thinking? But without anybody persuading me to, to give me a hundred arguments, the biggest issue that really made me think this through is when I came to verse 7, it says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and then he's going to come out, and there's going to be this great worldwide war, okay? Uh, sorry, Joe, I'm going to drive you crazy, but if you go back to the premillennial view, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. I had always felt that this description in Revelation 20 was at the end of the millennium, this great worldwide war. But as we've been studying through the book of Revelation, there are two other places where this great worldwide war is described. Chapter 16, and we just saw chapter 19, all the nations will be gathered together. So as I studied that worldwide war, I came to the conclusion that it's pretty difficult to see that as a different war from the first two. So if the first two wars are clearly taking place at the second coming, then is it possible that this war mentioned in chapter 7 through 10 is also describing the same event at the second coming? If that's the case, we know that this war takes place after the thousand years. So, you ready for this? I am leaning and open to an all-male position. Don't throw anything, please. <laughs> so you're like, are you allowed to do that? I thought pastors have all the answers. Well, we have learned early in seminary, if you don't know, just snow. Just quote some Hebrew and Greek. Just take people around the barn. Eventually, they'll go, never mind. No, not at all. No, we don't have all the answers. Now, if it, I, I'm, I, I hope you couldn't beat the gospel out of me. In fact, I have some bullet points of theology. I heard a missionary say this. I have some bullet points. You know what bullet points are? Teachings from the Bible for which I would hope I would be willing to take a bullet. Like, I would rather die than deny Christ as Lord. I would rather die than renounce the gospel. I would rather die than, than say the Bible isn't true. But I am not ready to die for my view of the millennium. So if I turn up, belly up in the pond, tell the police it was someone in here, okay? <laughs> so, but either way, as we walk through this now, like me, some of you are already going, please, this is going to be crazy. How's he going to get out of this one, okay? Let me tell you why I've considered that this is possible. But I wholeheartedly respect those who are pre-mill. I think that makes a lot of sense. If we had more time, I could show you some leaks in it. Both views have some leaks. It's not cut and dry. Some of you probably don't remember this, but our denomination, which is called the Evangelical Free Church, has a doctrinal statement. Years ago, to be part of the, pre, uh, the Evangelical Free Church, you had to hold to a pre-mill view. And when the leadership proposed to change that, there was great discord among some of the pastors because they're like, that's a fundamental, you can't give up pre-mill. I don't agree with that. I think that we can hold to either one of these, okay? 
but I don't want you to do this. People will say, I don't know if I'm pre-mill or all mill. I'm just pan-mill it. It'll all pan out in the end. At least think about it, okay? It's not the most important thing in the Bible, but all of the Bible is for our edification. So my suggestion then is that verses 1 through 3, Joe, if you'll go to the second slide, is describing this period right now that began at the coming of Christ. All right, so let's, let's go back. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, earlier in the book, in chapter 1, Jesus, because of his resurrection, says, I was dead, now I'm alive, and I have the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. So there was something there that said, because of his glorious death and resurrection, he took a new reign of authority over sin, Satan, and death. In chapter 5, we saw no one was worthy to open the scroll, and we learned there that Jesus is worthy to open the book. He died and rose again, and so he has the authority. So my suggestion here is that these keys are similar. We're talking about the same time. Christ was given the keys of death and hell at his resurrection. Christ was exalted to the right hand of God and declared to be Lord of lords and King of kings at his resurrection. Therefore, I think this event is taking place at the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Now it says, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. Now I thought that was a slam dunk proof that the, the millennium could not be going on right now. Because last time I looked, the devil is running around like a like a madman. Anybody else agree with that? First Peter chapter 5 says he roams all over the earth. So at first I was like, this has to be in the future because the devil's not all tied up. But I can live with this. It says he was bound so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. Now again, I thought, there's another slam dunk. It has to be pre-mill. Because last time I looked, he's deceiving the nations. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 says he's blind to the minds of unbelievers. So I had it all figured out until I heard the other side, which is, by the way, a great principle in life. The book of Proverbs says everyone sounds right when they tell their side until you hear the other side. So be sure to suspend your judgment. Come and says, you know what my spouse did to me? There's another side to that. And we all know that, that we're like, are we telling the same story, right? So, while Satan does deceive many people from coming to Christ, think about it in the Old Testament. The gospel was going forth from the Jewish nation. They were supposed to be a light to the nation, to the nations, but there was very little influence. Christianity had very little influence on the nations. And it may very well be because of Satan's influence to deceive the nations. But when Christ came to earth and he spoke of binding the strong man, is it not possible that somehow Satan is being hindered to prevent the gospel to spread and flow to all the nations? In fact, what was the end of the Great Commission? Go and take the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. So when it says he can't deceive the nations any longer, I don't think it's saying Satan can't deceive people. Of course he can. Some of you sitting here are being deceived by him and don't even know it. Many of us know people who are being deceived. 
but in the grand scheme of the nations. What a glorious thing to, to see how the gospel is penetrating every tribe, tongue, people, and nations. That's why we care about missions. That's why we give to missions. That's why we look for people to be open to take the gospel to the nations. So, my suggestion is that this period that we're living in, Satan is still able to tempt us. He still deceives individuals. We ought not think, he can't bother me, he's in prison. But he is no longer able to hinder the, the expansion of the gospel to the nations. All right. Second point. So Satan is bound right now. He cannot destroy the church and he cannot deceive the nations. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Point two, verses four through six then. If you are looking at this from a pre-mill view, you would say, in the future... Saints are going to reign with Christ in the millennium. If you look at this from an amil, what we're going to read in verses 4 through 6 is happening right now. Okay? Some of you have a screensaver on your face. If I now said you're the dumbest audience I ever spoke to, you would just go, mm-hmm, because you checked out. So come back. Come back. All right. Verse 4. Now I'm suggesting that this began... At the beginning of the church age, John says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. Who? Who, Who's sitting on these thrones? We know Christ is going to reign. He says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And he's going to go on to say in verse 5, this is the first resurrection. So Joe, I hate to do this, brother, but could you go back to the first slide? All right. So this view would say, look here. They, when Jesus comes back, all the dead in Christ rise and reign with Christ during the millennium. Possible. However, he says, I saw souls... As far as I, last time I looked, souls are already alive. But it says these souls came to life. Now, Augustine's view of this is that this is just talking about people get saved. Joe, go to the next slide, the, 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 the amillennial view. So Augustine said, when John says, during the millennium, I saw souls come to life, this is just people getting saved. I can't buy that because the description of these people are those who have been martyred and dead. So, a, a common view for this perspective is that John is describing what happens to each Christian who dies. Each Christian who dies, the moment they die, they depart to be with Christ and they begin to reign with him. Okay? And you go, why does he call it the first resurrection? because he wanted to. It doesn't have to be describing the resurrection at the second coming. It's just a way of symbolically saying, from the time Christ came to earth, now when Christians die, they go to be with Christ. Now, is this a select group? Only those who had their heads cut off? I don't think so. For example, other times in the book, he goes, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. He doesn't say, only are they blessed if they die in the Lord because they got their heads cut off. 
So, in this view, we're simply saying that it's a blessing and a privilege. Some of you are wanting to know, where is Aunt Betty who, who died and went to be with Jesus? She's seated with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. She's not able to, you know, beat you with her scepter. Don't, don't read too much into it. All right. So, the made alive is simply, uh, and this resurrection is a description of them being able to be in heaven with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. Okay? So, having said that, John says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. In other words, anybody who knows Christ is blessed, and the word holy means a saint set apart. Because they know Christ, they're going to go to heaven. And then it says, and over them the second death has no power. Next week we're going to read, the second death is hell. So how blessed it is to be a Christian, because if you die, you get to be with Jesus forever, which in the first century, these Christians are going, what if I die? Don't worry about it. Blessed and holy are those who die in the Lord, because you're going to go reign with him. The, these, the second death has no power, but instead you'll be cre- priests of God and of Christ who will reign with him for a thousand years. Those people in heaven are reigning with him. If Christ comes back, we'll get to reign with him them and him in the future. But for now, this is a way of describing that they are blessed and reigning with Christ in heaven. Now, the last thing we're going to look at is Satan being released to deceive the nations. Some of you are going, uh, Tom, why are you tapping your watch? 10.05. Okay, so just a reminder, years ago, our services used to last 75 minutes. During the pandemic, because we were trying to consolidate video, lots of things, we condensed them to an hour, nine to 10. Um, But we we announced that when the new fall year begins, we're gonna change the times of the services and the services will go back to 75 minutes. You're like, that's not what I signed up for. (laughs) If you already put your money in the offering, we will get it and give it back to you. (laughs) you can get a full discount. But what we would hope is that a friend of mine, young man I was mentoring, he said, one of the elders told me, if you preach past 10 o'clock, I feel like we're staying after school, like it's punishment. So if you feel like you're being punished because we go till 10:15, I really don't even know what to say. <laughs> Actually, I do know what I would like to say. <laughs> but I'm being taught not to do that. (laughs) All right, so the last thing is at the end of this thousand years, right before the second coming, there's going to be a worldwide battle. We saw that in chapter 16. Just flip back to chapter 19 real quick when it described the coming of Christ. It says that the nations are gathered to fight against Christ. Look at verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. Okay? So there's this theme in the book of Revelation that right before Christ comes back, the nations, the mass of humanity will gather to destroy Christians and to fight against the Lord Jesus. Okay? So what's it going to look like? Well, let's look. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison 
and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Again, I wish I had 150 minutes. Some of you are going, thank God. But let me say this. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's a description of a great war that involves Gog and Magog. And in that section, it says, gather together all the birds to eat the flesh of... I'm like, that sounds like Revelation 19. Yes. However, dispensationalists and premillennialists have interpreted Gog and Magog to be Russia. Solely Russia. Okay? But notice here that Gog and Magog, I think clearly here, are speaking far more broadly than just Russia. It's all the nations. Because look what it says. They are gathering them together from the four corners of the earth. Not just from Russia. So in different ways, the book of Revelation has described how Satan in the last days will cause the nations to gather together to try to destroy Christians. In fact, this is the passage that tells us this. What are they doing? It says, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Okay? So in chapter 19, it says in verse 19, they assembled to make war against him. Here it says, they assembled to gather against the camp of the saints. In other words, to destroy Christians. Now, is the camp of the saints literal? You know, you're like, I've been to Camp Sankinach. Where is Camp of the Saints? Some would say this is Israel in the last days. I don't think it has to be that when it describes the city of God. In fact, earlier in the book, Jesus described the Christians as part of the temple. So I don't know that we're supposed to read here that there's one certain spot only. Although, if it is, I would say it's around Israel. But there will be a last day's battle, and we saw in chapter 19 that Christ comes back and destroys them. This is just another way of describing the same event. Look, they gather, and it says in verse 9, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's, that's serious business. That's why in chapter 19 it said, tell the beast, the birds that come, there's going to be a big... Actually, now we get added here. They're not going um, raw, it's cooked, right? They're going to, people are cooked, and they're going, to, they're going to eat the flesh of all these enemies of God. There will be massive carnage, right? And there's been visuals like the blood will be up to the horse's bridle. So, at the end of this period of time on planet earth there will be a great last days battle of the nations against god and against his people and guess who wins obviously god what about that devil he's been causing a lot of trouble the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever that verse makes me glad because personally, I don't like the devil. We need to be careful not to, to rail against the devil because two seconds, if he had his way, 
he would destroy us. We are not stronger than the devil. Even the book of Jude says the archangel Michael would not rail an accusation against the devil. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. And so as the devil comes against us in daily demonic attacks and temptations and trying to divide our church and all of the other horrible things that he's doing all over the world and in Afghanistan, thank God that the Bible says one day the God of peace shall crush Satan under our feet. So this is his outcome. And I'm grateful for that. And what did we learn? When we're grateful and we agree with something, we say, amen. amen. Praise God that the devil will be destroyed. Now, so you say, okay, Pastor Tom, that was quite a um, historical Bible conference. But what does that have to do with trying to keep my kids off of drugs and trying to work in a difficult marriage? Let me give you some applications. Number one, anytime you're reading the Bible, look for an appreciation of the benefits of the gospel. It's all about the gospel right? This is another benefit of the gospel. What? Well, number one, because Jesus died and rose again, I've been delivered from Satan. I have a secure future. Satan's going to be destroyed. I'm grateful for that. I read a great quote this week in a, in a magazine. This brother said this, the goodness of the gospel is not diminished by the cultural movements in which it lives. I like that. There's, everybody's got a different view on pandemics, politics, the goodness of the gospel is not diminished by the cultural movements in which it lives. The gospel is still the gospel. If you've never read the gospel primer, get it and read it. It's little devotions each day pointing you to the benefits of the gospel. No matter what your view of the millennium is, Jesus died, Jesus rose, we are blessed, we have been rescued from Satan. Amen. Amen. Secondly, we can praise Jesus that he has begun to reign. Jesus isn't up there just twiddling his thumbs going, Dad, I'm bored. How long do I have to sit at your right hand? He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God right now. And that gives me security because he sends me out into this world and he goes, go and make disciples. And I'm going, really? And he goes, yeah, and I'm with you. And may I encourage you to remember that, that the risen Lord Jesus is with you in all of your mess. You're like, well, if you came into my house, he does every day when you go there because he lives in you and he's with us and that's encouraging and then i can rest in the protection of christ you know some of you are going well i ain't going to be here so i'll say goodbye because they're not going to martyr me because i'm going to be up in heaven great i hope you're right but if you're not whether i die a sweet peaceful death or whether i get martyred same outcome to live as christ to die as gained whether i'm killed or i calmly fall asleep in jesus it's still an upgrade. I'm going to go and forever be with the Lord, and that's encouraging. Now, last, last um, thought. Based on this idea of being deceived by Satan, thank God that he can't deceive the nations. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. But you know what he can do? He can deceive people. And you know where it's most painful? Is when he deceives someone that we love. Now, let me make it one step more personal. He can deceive you. He has deceived me on more than one occasion. In fact, we don't even need his help. Our sinful hearts have a great propensity to be self-deceived. That's why we need the Bible, so that the Word of God pierces to the dividing the thoughts of our soul and spirit and reveals to us, you're deceiving yourself. James says, if you think you're religious and you can't bridle your tongue, you're deceived. So, my application would be, 
What do I do when those whom I love are deceived? When they say, I don't believe this stuff. When my kid says, I don't think Jesus is real. When my kid says, I want to do this, this, and this based on what I learned about. What do you do? You can't beat it out of them. You can't lecture it out of them. You stop spending all your time talking to them about God, and you spend more time talking to God about them. The Bible says we must not be quarrelsome, but gently correct those in opposition. If perhaps God grants them repentance and brings them to the knowledge of the truth, and they escape from the snare of the devil. If you don't pray over the souls of your kids and your grandkids, I don't know what you're thinking. But whatever you're not doing in that respect, stop doing that and start praying. Not only getting excited because little Barry at two years old goes, I asked Jesus in my heart, but praying that the rest of his life, little Barry will persevere and be a follower of Christ and will not come hell or high water one day say, I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. And some of you I know are pained because your kids and grandkids may have been experiencing it. The battle is not over and the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. It's not because we give them a good book. It's not because we went to a great seminar. It's because we, as the people of God, pled with the Lord Jesus to bring them to the knowledge of the truth and to cast down every speculation and false knowledge and thoughts that are deceiving them into believing Satan's lies. And those of us who have been set free and our eyes have been opened, it's not because we're smarter than the other bears. It's entirely a work of the wonderful grace of God. Amen? Amen? So let's thank him. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the gospel. And may your church march on because Jesus reigns. And we give you the glory and we pray for all who are deceived to come to know the truth of who Jesus is and how they can come to know him. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.